everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Food for Thought, a series of interviews N-Wave is conducting with business leaders in the food industry, covering everything from consumer packaged goods to food supply chains to the world of product development. The focus of Food for Thought is how we can rethink food in a post-COVID-19 world. Our guest today is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Dr. Charlebois is the former Dean of the Rowe School of Business at Dalhousie University. He co-founded the University of Guelph's Food Institute and has also taught at the University of Regina and University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Charlebois is the author of five books on global food systems and is a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail, BNN Bloomberg, and the Canadian Grocer. Dr. Charlebois, welcome to Food for Thought, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Perfect. Let's jump right in. So uh, firstly, I want to talk about something that's uh, a very uh, hot topic these days, alternative proteins. And I'm wondering if you can reframe for the average Canadian what the debate should actually revolve around versus plant versus animal-based diets using facts or objectivity as opposed to subjectivity and simply viewpoints. Is it is there a, a case based on facts that it's simply not sustainable based on future population growth, or is it unsustainable at current levels? Um, what insight might you give to reframe the argument to, you know, traditionally consumers that are used to, to animal-based, but are, but, are, but are seemingly being pulled to plant-based by the market? Yeah, it's so good question. I mean, uh, it, it, it was an ongoing debate, at least uh, before COVID, uh, for the last couple of years, a lot of people were wondering what is the future of protein, uh, a, a mixture of different sources, uh, is, uh, is what uh, was going to be, or what was being offered to Canadians, uh, probably for the first time, uh, I mean, beyond me democratized the notion of, of, uh, ve- vegetable proteins, uh, by allowing them to be available um, on the market. Uh, for the longest time, people felt that lentils, chickpeas are great, but they go in a salad and people didn't know how, uh, they didn't see them as a source of protein, but they are. And uh, and Beyond Meat made, made them um, uh, edible, I guess, <laughs> in, in a certain way, because a lot of people just didn't see chickpeas or lentils as delicious as a, as a steak on a barbecue. And so that, that bridge was, was made, but it did create a lot of tension between the two camps, I guess, between, uh, animal proteins and, uh, animal and, and, and vegetable. So is it more sustainable? Well, uh, of course I'm a scientist. So the best answer is, is that I can provide you is it depends, depends what metrics you're looking at. Of course, if someone actually eats 90 kilos of beef every year, that's a problem. But probably relate, uh, it's a problem related to the environment. It's a problem related to health. So there, there is probably a, a sustainable way of eating different types of meat. And nutritionally, actually, there's probably some value there as well. Uh, it's just the, the debate has been so divisive, we kind of forgot that the two can actually work together. And uh, and I hope that that I, I at the beginning of 2020 things were changing already before COVID. So I suspect, hopefully, coming out of this, uh, that the language will be a little bit different, uh, or at least the same as the beginning of the year. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. One wild card source of protein that many in the Western world at least aren't familiar with is insect proteins. Do you see a future for that at all in the Western diet five, 10 years down the road? I think so. I do. So, uh, so uh, based on our numbers, of course, not a whole lot of people are interested in eating uh, insects, of course, but uh, I would say that there is potential there, uh, some interest uh, for, it is the cheapest way to produce um, protein, to be honest, and uh, it's hard to argue when you look at the metrics and you look at some of the studies out there, uh, it is really interesting uh, what you can do, and I've actually eaten insects myself, and yeah, beyond the yuck factor, you can actually start um, eating different uh, granola bars, different products, uh, and considering insects as an ingredient. And so I do believe that there is potential there. There's also a lot of potential for lab-grown meat. Um, before COVID, we were expecting the United States to approve the commercialization of lab-grown meat, but uh, I'm not sure if it's still ongoing, but uh, that, that is also of interest. Okay. Very interesting. Um, shifting to more Canada's food security and the North American food supply chain post COVID-19, I think there's a big shift or some shifts coming to the industry. What can the Canadian government do to help the Canadian economy capture more value within the food supply chain? And kind of where I'm going with this is, you know, Canada is one of the largest wheat producers and exporters in the world. And for example, that wheat you know, might be exported to Italy, produced into pasta, put back on a truck to the Western European coast, and then ship back to Canadians to eat in the form of pasta. Is there, yep. you know, this is one example, but are there ways that we can capture more of that value within Canada? I know it's difficult because we're not the most population dense country, but are there some, you know, examples that you, that you could give of how we could capture more of that value than simply being an export focused nation? Oh, I would say so. Uh, I mean, I've been claiming this for 20 years. Uh, we don't process enough. Uh, we think about commodities, uh, but we don't necessarily think about value-added uh, products. And this is a big myth. In fact, during COVID, you're, start, you're, you're seeing it. I mean, processing is a big flaw in Canada. We're, we're still not doing all that great. If we can actually better, if you cannot have a strong agri-food sector without a strong processing sector, and and that needs to be recognized more and more. And I suspect that with during COVID, we're going to do that. Um, or after COVID, we're, we're going to recognize that a little bit more. Uh, hopefully, anyways. And that can actually that applies to wheat, that applies to lentils, chickpeas, AGT in Saskatchewan. I mean, kind of did that. It it it, it was born on the basis of of adding value to commodities grown in the prairies. We can do the same with other commodities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we've also seen a drastic rise in food wastage during COVID-19. And largely this is a result of food service demand going to zero. But we're seeing things like entire crops of vegetables being dumped into landfills, plowed back into fields. We're seeing livestock being euthanized because of a bottleneck in processing capacity because of the large plants in Alberta being shut down. Are these issues that were, that existed before and this black swan event has simply brought them to light? Was the, was the food system bursting at the seams or will a lot of these problems that are getting a lot of media attention go away once there's sort of equilibrium in the market? 
<laughs> I I certainly hope not, but I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Unfortunately, uh, I've seen it before. We've gone through crisis in the past. Uh, like I said, I've been at this for 20 years, and and we're kind of repeating ourselves. Unless we really want to change things, and and I suspect it would have to be commodity specific. I'd say that really. Um, when it comes to pulses, there is there is a, a an ongoing initiative that seems to be working so far, and that's the Proteins Industries Canada, and that really has mobilized several stakeholders around um, a value chain for for pulses in in the West, and you've seen provinces embrace that approach. You've seen really you've seen a lot of different um, uh, stakeholders revolve around PIC uh, and that that because it, it is a super cluster it's one way to do it and it seems to be working and uh, hopefully there will be more successes down the road but we could actually create a super cluster for different commodities or for different markets I mean PIC is, is, a lot, is, is all about a market driven agenda and typically in Canada, we've always looked at commodities and just felt, well, if we can grow it, a market will come. But it doesn't necessarily work that way anymore. You have to figure out what the market is looking for, what are the gaps, what are the pretties, and work your way back. And designing an, an architecture, uh, an industrial architecture uh, around uh, those, uh, based on those gaps, based on those needs that you you see. Mm -hmm. um, just touching on the processing piece, I believe the stat is ninety percent of all of Canada's beef supply comes from the three plants in southern Alberta. Is this? Do you see that as too much concentration risk in terms of? from a Canadian food security perspective or is simply it's a, it's a high volume, low margin business and it requires large companies like a Cargill or a JBS to be able to, you know, keep the cost of meat down or is there a more sustainable model where you don't have so much of the capacity tied up within three facilities feeding an entire nation essentially? Well, that so, the industry's architecture is the product of what consumers want, want, and, and that's cheap food. So if we, and that's the key here. Uh, if that changes, leaving COVID into another era, maybe we'll see something else. But for the time being, I actually don't see uh, any significant changes. Um, we talk about local food. We talk about uh, different initiatives, but it will end up costing more. Uh, so are consumers willing to pay for value? I don't know. Uh, we're going to a great recession right now. So there are fewer consumers who can afford um, a value added product. So it's going to be very difficult uh, to establish some sort of a, a new social contract between uh, between consumers and, and the food industry. But my guess is that consumers won't have a choice but to accept higher food prices because they're going up. I mean, you can see right now across the supply chain, it does cost more to produce food. So eventually, prices will have to go up. Mm -hmm. um, no, that, that's a really interesting point. Um, 
switching gears a little bit, you've, you've given some keynote speeches in the past on food fraud that you've said is apparent in the global food supply chain. Can you articulate to the average consumer, what do you mean by food fraud? Um, well, what I mean by food fraud, well, essentially, I would say that food fraud is, um, uh, is categorized in three ways. One, you may actually have, uh, say, a product that is misrepresented. Uh, of course, for all food fraud, you're looking at mislabeling, but there is misrepresentation. For example, you are selling a product as, as, a, as an organic product, but it's not. So that's misrepresentation. Um, also, you have counterfeiting, of course, because you have theft uh, all across the uh, uh, supply chain, and that gets repurposed. And finally, adulteration, uh, replacing one ingredient with another uh, cheaper one, which is, of course, um, uh, also known as econ economically motivated adulteration. And uh, that's the hardest one to catch. And often you would see liquids, spices, you would see different products being affected by, by food fraud. And uh, yeah, it is an absolutely major issue uh, for sure. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how we tackle this. And the only way to do it is to actually accommodate whistleblowers because they'll have data, they'll have information and, uh, and, and also accommodating um, um, industry as well. Cause they know that there are some people that are, that are, Construct companies are problems and they're affecting the reputation of an entire sector. And that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And th this leads well into my next question, which was, you know, food traceability is becoming a big theme in terms of building sustainable food chains. We're seeing blockchain technologies being rolled out by the likes of IBM and applied to large scale farming. We're seeing tech startups focus specifically on traceability and food safety. Um, we're seeing, you know, CPG products coming out that have a lock code on the back of them where you can look it up online and see exactly where your product was harvested. Are these nice to haves or in the spirit of food fraud and be, and building a more transparent food chain, do you foresee, you know, things of this nature becoming a requirement to have your food on the shelves at national grocery retailers, or like you said, it'll ultimately decide do consumers want the lowest cost product or a transparent, you know, um, higher quality, potentially product. <laughs> well, that's, I think it's, it's, it's always hard to consider the market as an homogeneous entity. Um, and this is what's happening right now, believing that really, uh, consumers are all different. They have different needs. Some people will want uh, different kinds of food. Some people will want the same food. Um, but I think because we're cooking more during COVID, because we actually are becoming more sophisticated, I, I suspect that that is going to change. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how things go. Uh, with with people having more knowledge about about uh, about food and they've been able to read the instructor's manual of their of their stove. <laughs> I mean, some of them actually. I mean, you actually have apartments nowadays rented without a stove, a stoveless uh, apartment. There are there are some in Toronto. 
he rented for thirty three hundred dollars without a stove. Not, there's not even a place for a stove. So you can see that really uh, things were going in a specific direction. Um, it'll be interesting to see if there's going to be a shift there a little bit as a result of of this recession. Right, and. Speaking of consumer education, where do you think the onus lies in terms of consumers better understanding what goes into their food? Because now I think consumers, when they go to the grocery store, they have a little bit more time than they did two months ago where we were always go, go, go. And they're looking what's on the back of their granola bar or whichever product they're looking at. And, you know, they're hearing lots of things about bad, you know, refined sugars and high carbohydrate products and and different things that have traditionally been in, you know, large scale CPG products. Is this a matter of consumers empowering themselves and wanting to, you know, live a healthier lifestyle? Is it more regulation in terms of how companies market their products and how transparent they are with, you know, what actually goes into them? Transparency is, uh, is certainly something that uh, consumers are expecting. Uh, but what I think is going to, what I think is happening is that, um, and of course, in return, the industry has tried to provide transparency to consumers, only to find out that perhaps some of the things that consumers are seeing may not be uh, appreciated or may not be what they were expecting. And COVID is really um, shining a light on some of the practices that we see on farms. For example, dairy cows producing 10 times the amount of milk they would normally, they would normally produce um, just because of, the, of genetics and how they're built, how they're designed. Um, the call of, of hogs right now because they are uh, they are being euthanized because there's no spot for them in in slaughtering the milk dumping I mean all of these things are probably getting people to think differently about food you can make the system transparent but be careful what you what you wish for people may not like what you're doing even though you think it's a lifestyle and it's part of what you do um, which could actually get people to, to eat differently. So it, transparency is a very interesting concept in agriculture because it doesn't necessarily mean if, it, if the system is more transparent, it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually better. You could make things worse. Yeah. That's really interesting. Sometimes when you, you know, open the curtain, you don't always like what you, you know, thought was going on. So now that's a great, exactly. great point. Um, speaking of, of food pricing, I think we're going to, you know, likely see a, a potentially scary number of restaurants not open back up because of COVID-19. Um, and you, you'd mentioned food costs because of increased competition in the restaurant space in recent years, there's almost been a race to the bottom in terms of prices. Um, do you think that restaurants should be increasing their prices across the board to make for a, a sustainable industry and a higher quality restaurant experience or do you think that consumers in North America at least are always going to opt for sort of the lower cost basis? I mean, we've heard some staggering numbers well up above 50% of restaurants not opening up and that's, you know, a, a favorite pastime of a lot of, you know, Canadian and Americans. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I actually do think that, uh, that it is going to be a challenge, uh, in the future. Uh, there's, 
You know, the, this big urban-rural divide we have uh, is really uh, hurting us uh, as a society, I guess. Um, only 2% of the population will li- live on farms. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that 98% um, should not be served what they're looking for. Uh, misunderstanding uh, of farming is is hurting our perception of food. It's also hurting policy as well, uh, to be honest. I mean, I, I think we do have some governments out there that don't necessarily... Uh, they're not they're not avoiding agriculture. They just misunderstand it, and that leads to a a confusing sort of uh, relationship between society, governments, and uh, an industry. Mm-hmm. So so post COVID, are you are you optimistic about things that will change? I mean, some things we've we've spoke about in the last half hour you think that will likely go back to sort of the way they were, but is there part of you that's optimistic that this is a, an event that's touched every part of the supply chain, every part of society? Um, are you optimistic in humanity, you know, changing, or do you think we'll go back to our old ways? <laughs> well, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I do hope things are going to change, but I don't think they will. Unfortunately, uh, COVID is, but COVID is interesting because it's, it is long. I mean, it is, it's not just a snowstorm. It's not just a hurricane. It's not just, um, a, a, an earthquake. It's really, it has affected the entire planet within months. And, uh, it has made a lot of people feel vulnerable even though it was uh, it was virtual or it wasn't real, it, it didn't make people feel vulnerable. So that's going to be interesting to see uh, if there is any any interesting legacy in in COVID. That should be that should be one of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I want to be respectful of your time, so I think we only have time for a couple more questions. But I wanted to ask about the retail experience. So, you know, in the past five ten years grocery stores have become an immersive experience. They, you know, these companies have made huge investments in making the retail shopping experience very seamless and customer friendly. And all of a sudden with COVID, we're now forced to maintain distance from other uh, customers. The cashier, which was once, um, I want to say a friendly place, but you know, I've found cashiers to actually be really friendly right now, which has been a positive, but there's glass barriers. Um, you know, do, do you see, these things reverting back or do you think that people are going to be you know, overly concerned from a germ perspective and, and then as a result opting for more, you know, grocery pickup, um, the D to C type, you know, and meal kits like a good food or a hello fresh. Do you see those continuing to go on or people once sort of this, this tide has blown over, which we don't know when it will be, people will want to go back to, you know, seeing their neighbors at the grocery stores and, and striking up conversations. I think there's a, we're social beasts. Uh, I think we're always uh, we will always want to interact with people. Right now, of course, we're conscious of the fact that we may endanger other people's lives, uh, including our own. And so, so I think this is just a bubble. Um, 
And I think beyond that, of course, we will go back to the grocery store. But the e-commerce part is uh, undeniably uh, there from now on. I mean, before COVID, 3% of the population were buying food online on a regular basis. And now that percentage to perhaps exceed 20%. So that's a, that would be a huge shift. Um, and, and the industry is not ready, but this could actually create this, uh, this, what, this, this phenomenon, what I call the, this, this democratization of supply chains. You, as soon as e-commerce exists in people's minds, it actually does give an opportunity to any any company in the food uh, in the food uh, business to actually have a shot at at the consumer, and that's going to be very interesting. Farmers, processors, anybody can actually sell food to uh, to the consumer. Cisco Canada is now selling food to uh, to consumers. And two months ago, if you would have asked me if Cisco Canada would have been selling food to uh consumers i would have told you you're you're on good cannabis but it did happen <laughs> it did happen it's it's happening now so it's a lot of interesting things yeah no i i think gfs is doing the same and i mean i i agree with you two months ago you never would have would have saw that i guess my last question is you know a lot of the news that consumers see about food, you know, there's a lot of people probably scared about they're seeing, you know, McDonald's is going to, you know, um, non-Canadian beef out of necessity. They're hearing about these plant shutdowns and, and COVID, you know, affecting uh, a lot of these plants in Southern Alberta. What, what would you say to just the average consumer about, you know, food in the next six months? Should they be worried that Canada is going to run out of food or there's, you know, I know the grocery stores have been doing a great job of, of stepping up and all the frontline workers. What would sort of, what would you leave people with as a message, um, as we're, you know, on the horizon, maybe of the economy opening up sometime in the next six to eight weeks? Well, you, you have to take a step back and rationalize some of the decisions happening right now. So if you go back to McDonald's, procuring meat out of the United States and elsewhere, um, I, I would say this, um, Canada cutting out of beef, McDonald's did, and that's why it went south. There's a big difference. High River uh, has McDonald's as its biggest customer. And uh, and frankly, because McDonald's went south, it actually will put less pressure on High River. So it, that plant can provide uh, beef to other outlets. So it was actually a good move. So you have to think about things from a systems perspective and understand the big picture. And if you do take the time to understand the big picture, You'll feel safe. You'll 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 feel that uh, the uh, the food industry can deliver, can do a good job, and will continue to do so. Oh, that that's really interesting perspective. Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Charlebois, for for taking the time to uh, to speak with us, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure.